1: Hi, this is Tracy Slatten hosting Independent Artists and Thinkers. I'm so happy to welcome you to the show today. We have a great show lined up for you. I'm very excited. And I want to say I'm very grateful and humbled that so many people are listening to the show, both in the archives and live. So thanks for tuning in, and I hope you're enjoying yourself. I created this show to support those brave souls who are operating outside the structures of the big established corporations. As the intro to the show says, I intend to illuminate the unusual journey and to bring it to you. I'm interested in alternatives to conventional thinking and conventional answers. Please do call in with questions or comments to 516-453-6052. You can also live chat me at blogtalkradio.com slash independentartistthinkers. I'm on now, so if you have a question, type it in and I'll, I'll ask it. Email me in between shows if you want to suggest a guest or have me ask questions of a particular guest. You can reach me at Tracy at Tracy dot com. And that's Tracy spelled T-R-A-C-I. In the coming weeks, we have some great guests coming on next week on Wednesday, July 22nd at noon. 21st century troubadour Gideon Irving will be on talking about stovetop folk music. You have to listen in to find out what that is. The show airs on a special day and time, Wednesday at noon, because Thursday the 23rd is my birthday, so I'm going to take that day off to eat chocolate and stuff like that. Then on Thursday, July 30th, mezzo-soprano opera star Elizabeth DeShong will be on at 1 p.m. Very excited to have her. She's amazing. On August 6th, Dr. Bruce Cole, a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., will talk about art and architecture in our country's most public venues and about our country's heritage of art. Very cool. So, tune in and keep checking the website, com, and the blog talk radio. Find out who will be on the show. I'm delighted today to have Augustine Linus, known as Jerry, but more familiarly known as Linus, on the show. I almost don't have enough words to describe Linus. He's a true Renaissance character. He's a sculptor, graphic designer, illustrator, publisher, inventor, and most important, a frisbee player. <laughs> um so he's been a sculptor working in numerous traditional materials including clay wood stone lost wax cold bronze ceramic concrete and etc but he's best known for his ephemeral work in sand and snow so that's kind of reminds me of the tibetan mandalas um he's been featured in worldwide media including the new york times new york magazine the new york daily news games magazine newsday the associated the associated press ABC TV's That's Incredible, and others. He's a snow sculptor. He was a snow sculptor at the 1980 Winter Olympic Games in Lake Placid, New York. He has co-produced documentary films about sand and snow sculptures, films that were featured on HBO, ABC, CBS, NBC, and PBS. He created a 25-foot sand portrait of Robert Moses at the Robert Moses State Park for the cover of the New York Daily News, and a 65-foot sand sculpture for the New York State Park's 70th anniversary of Joan Beach. Wow. He was commissioned by the New York City Parks and Recreation um, to sculpt elaborate concrete sandpit in Manhattan's Riverside Park and huge concrete and wood sculptures in Marine Park, Brooklyn, concrete animal sculptures in McCarran Park, Brooklyn, and 27 bronze animal sculptures in East River Park in Lower Manhattan. And he was featured uh, he was a featured subject of a documentary film for Japan Public Television's New Yorkers. So Linus doesn't stop there. This resume and everything he said just goes on and on. So I'll try to say just a few more things. He's an approved art instructor for public school enrichment programs throughout New York City, Nassau, and Westchester counties. And um, he's currently working on some very interesting books. One of them is an interactive ebook, which he showed me while we were preparing for the show it's called Tammy and Blue and a Race About Time. And this is just the most unusual multimedia kind of ebook. It's absolutely beautiful. I think its pub date is in August. So um, you'll be checking his website for that, linuspress.com, because it's really, really cool. He's also working on the ABCs of Riverside Park. Um, And he's currently working on a series of figurative sculptures of freestyle disc players for trophies for the 2016 World Freestyle Championships to be held in New York City. And he's doing their website and logo design. He's the author, photographer, book designer, and publisher of the ABCs of Central Park, which is a colorful alphabet guidebook to New York City's treasured green space with 109 full-color photos and lots of content. He's the creative director and founding partner of Multimedia Masters, Inc., a film, audiovisual, and print production company, which has produced several independent documentary films, including Sansong, and Olympic Village Journal, and has won numerous film industry awards. Um, author, sculptor, photographer, book designer, and packager of Sansong, which was published and distributed by St. Martin's Press with 3,000 words of text and 109 photos. So, um... He's done a little bit of everything and he's amazing. So, Linus, thank you for being here.
0: Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> I don't, don't know what to say now.
1: <laughs> you you're truly a renaissance person.
0: I I don't really think I am a renaissance person. Uh, comparing me to those geniuses is uh is humbling. <laughs> and uh and also I uh, recently I've discovered that there are a lot of geniuses out there. The internet has has humbled me a lot. Uh, I thought I was a, a unusual sand sculptor. Now there are hundreds and hundreds of them out there, and some of them are brilliant and unbelievable. So,
1: well, I have to recognize a polymath when I find one, and you are that, Linus. So, um, you know, I was you were showing me your games, all these games you've invented that look fascinating, and we'll talk more about those a little later in the show. But it made me think, you know, Leonardo da Vinci designed floats for parades.
0: That's true. In fact, I have a very large book of uh, all of da Vinci's work on a bookstand right in front of me when I can see it while I'm working. And I turn a new page every day and say, oh, my God, <laughs> what a guy. <laughs> um, and I'm glad you used the word polymath because my dad was a polymath and an autodidact who left left uh, school in the sixth grade. Uh, he went to a one-room schoolhouse in the woods in the Ozarks in Missouri. and
1: What was his name? And just to tell you, a lot of my family came out of the Ozarks too. Uh,
0: his, his name was Vincent Ferdinand Linus, but he called himself Pancho because one of the first things he did was to learn a new language. He mastered Spanish and then he mastered Italian and uh, he married an Italian woman. He learned tango in tango school where he met my mother uh, and he taught himself many things, and as a child, one of the things that I remember very distinctly was that he didn't think it was unusual for a five or six year old kid like myself to learn Spanish via Morse code and <laughs> and to telegraph it from the living room to the kitchen on two different kinds of mechanisms, a vibroplex and a brass key, and then to send chess moves in Spanish via Morse code, and then to learn the abbreviation Morse code, and that was normal behavior for him. So my dad is responsible for a lot of this craziness.
1: Well, it's wonderful. Your dad didn't put any limits on your learning style, so in that way he unlimited your learning style. That's really a gift.
0: That's true, and he also told me... uh, not to pigeonhole myself. He said specialization can be a good thing that you become really good at something. You want your brain surgeon to be a specialist. But oftentimes you'll find that brain surgeons have other interests that they also develop that, that help them as brain surgeons. So I think of all of the things I do as pretty much the same thing. If I invent a game, I want it also to be beautiful and I want it to... Have Another function like my calendar game which hangs on the wall forever and never wears out and is a game board and it's very pretty to look at So why not uh, let cross fertilization happen?
1: So form function and aesthetics Well, linus you are truly a renaissance man with your amazing versatility From books to sculpture to inventing games teaching. Oh my god and I'd love to hear how you got started. And you sort of mentioned a few things about your dad, but how did you begin your journey and what has it taken for you to arrive at the place where you are currently? What training did you have? And when did you know you were going to be involved with the arts and inventing? Um, what did you think you would be when you were a little kid? You know, Morse coding chess moves to, in Spanish. And so tell me about your beginnings, about your childhood, your early career. Start young and just keep going.
0: Well, I knew immediately that I was an artist because when we were living in Maryland near the near Annapolis, the Chesapeake Bay was full of things that stung, <laughs> sea nettles and things like that. So I didn't want to go in that water. It was very salty and kind of disgusting. So I stayed on the shore and it was quite obvious as a preschooler that I could make things that people recognized and and also i have I have one remaining piece of sculpture that I made as a five year old and it's a Santa Claus about four inches tall oh. and It's obvious that that was done by somebody who knows how to remember what things look like and developed a physical facility to to make things. So I fell in love with clay immediately, but I also fell in love with sand and so from the beginning, I knew I would be an artist and i also discovered soon that i could draw and i had a favorite teacher who was my art teacher and i'll never forget mrs abbott and and she was so thoughtful and lovely and then i got formal training at the kansas city art institute from 1960 to 1964 Then I went into Peace Corps training, which put a little bit of a delay for about 18 weeks. I ended up in New York because the training didn't work out. I was married, and it was really a complicated situation. I came to New York and took a job as an art director for a big publishing company and found that I had uh, an interest in books, and I designed probably 300 books in a few years. Um, which usually meant hiring an illustrator and a cover designer. And um, But then I struck out on my own in 1970. Couldn't work for the man.
1: <laughs> Just
0: not – I could not have a boss. Having a client is a little different because they come to you, you're the expert, they want your expertise and your skill. So I started working as a freelancer, which was – difficult because I was also, for part of that time, a single parent with two little children, oh. a nine-month-old and a four-year-old, both daughters. It was the best time of my life. I got two hours of sleep every night and ten hours of sleep on the weekend. Uh, and
1: uh, So you were in Manhattan with two little children working for yourself?
0: Yeah, and I say it's the best time of my life because my most important job is child rearing I now have a 30 year old son from the second marriage which tomorrow will be my 20 my thirty eighth, 37th anniversary um, and
1: congratulations
0: thank you and happy birthday <laughs> uh, yeah child rearing is the most important job in the world um, it makes everything else seem simple mm-hmm. and less important um, and I have three fabulous kids I loved being a single parent because I was a benevolent dictator. I just gave a command and they followed it, or else, <laughs> and nobody to argue with me and say, "Isn't there a better way?" and I'd say, "Hell no, this I'm the king <laughs> <laughs> um, and i I like freelancing because I get to choose my clients, and because of my father's peculiarities. My, grad, my dad was born in 1912, like Abraham Lincoln, in a, in a house, in a farm with no electricity, no indoor plumbing, no running water, an outhouse, which he refused to use, by the way, because he became an environmentalist. He said, I'm using the woods. Okay. It doesn't make sense to concentrate all the poison in one place. Hmm. So my dad was the first green person I ever knew and he remained that way all of his life. Never touched a plastic fork or a paper plate or a paper napkin. He mended everything that he owned. His shoes would last for 40 years. Uh, He was a phenomenon. He wasn't exactly healthy either because he had obsessive compulsive disorder, but that meant that when he learned things, he learned them really well. And when he took care of things, he took care of them. Um, he was kind of an absentee dad because he also could not stand having bosses, so he worked at night as a newspaper man, always on the graveyard shift or the lobster shift. And But then I learned about news and world events and things like that. My mom was also really important. She was a streetwise, hard-hitting Italian peasant who <laughs> was – she could play better chess than my older brother, who is a chess champion and a math major. Um, and she could beat all of us. And so I learned a great deal from her as well. I learned to be tolerant and to accept people who were different from myself. And And so I was very lucky as a kid. I had four brothers, all crazy. So I left home very early. At 14, I was
1: crazy in what way?
0: I don't really want to talk about it too much, but, uh, yeah, I have one Republican brother. That's crazy enough. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, and so that's that's a little too personal. But let's say this, that a house of seven people, four of whom are testosterone-laden crazy kids, is enough to drive any 14-year-old out of the house. So I – I started working when I was 12, sweeping up hair in a barber shop and shining shoes, and then I was a pin boy in a bowling alley, and then I did all kinds of insane, dangerous things, selling fruit on the back of a truck, you know, everything. Uh, by the time... Where did you go when you were 14 and left home? Um, I went to... I, I was working as a car hop in a drive-in restaurant and and doing other things as well. And I became the houseboy for two medical students who saved my life. Mm -hmm. Um, They not only saved my life emotionally and physically, one of them saved my life medically, which I could talk about. But suffice it to say that I had a near-death experience that makes me grateful to be alive every single day of my life. Makes me surprised that I wake up in the morning and makes me grateful when I go to bed at night that I made it through another day
1: Do you think that living with that kind of gratitude is part of what gives you The internal drive to create and invent and produce
0: I definitely do and I think it should happen to everybody Everybody should be told that they're going to die soon And that's exactly what happened to me And it happened to be a misdiagnosis. But for 11 days, I lived with the impression that I was cooked. And that changed me big time. And now I'm so happy that it happened to me. (laughs) Um, It's a bit of a burden to carry around because my wife doesn't want to hear me refer to that anymore. She don't say that, that this is your last day, you know, Um, but. It did, did make a difference in my lifestyle. and
1: uh, So you came out of that with the idea that you have to make every day count, and that meant pursuing the creative spark within you.
0: Well, I couldn't avoid following my creative drive. It just gave me more energy. It means that for many, many years I slept very little. I got up early. I went to bed late. And I survived during my single parenthood. I survived on almost no sleep. Uh, and now I get away with very little. I'm in bed by 12.30 or 1, sometimes 2 or 3. I'm always up way before 7, sometimes around 5, 5.30. And I'm instantly awake. And I oftentimes write down things that I learned while I was asleep because I've been trying to do lucid dreaming. <laughs> and sometimes I'm successful.
1: Um, when I was a healer in healing school, we used to have classes at night. So in the dream time, there would be healing classes, so I would wake up knowing new healing techniques because I had learned them in the dream time. It's a viable classroom space.
0: I, um, I wish I could control it more, uh, but I do plenty of work while I'm awake. I don't have to keep working while I'm <laughs> asleep. Um, and so this brings me up to today. I, I'm in love with sculpture, always have been, This new series of figurative pieces that I'm working on. uh, The
1: disc throwers? Well, talk about Frisbees, discs, and how you got involved in this and how it's a lifelong love.
0: All right. In 1957, when the flying disc became commercially available, I got one. I was in high school, and I fell in love with it. There's an old saying that when a ball sleeps, it dreams it's a disc because balls (laughs) are designed to fall and discs are designed to fly. And I started inventing games immediately. The first game, I think, was Circle Disc, where if you drop it, you have to sit down, you get one more throw. Then we played in the hall when it was raining outside. And I actually did a scene in Tron. Uh, no, no, it was um, War Games, I think, where I had to throw some discs down a long hallway, uh, which appeared in this feature film because that I became quite expert at it. Uh, I was one of the early freestylers, which means doing tricks with it, manipulating it, rolling it on your body. And I also love playing at the ocean where your body is slicked up from the water and the disc has very little uh, friction. So you can do a lot of manipulation and, and when you get overheated, you just jump, jump into the ocean and cool off. And of course, the disc is my favorite sand sculpting tool. It does everything. It polishes. It smooths. It digs. It tans. You can change its shape by bending it so you get a a tighter arc. You can make beautiful holes with it. and, And you can polish sand so it looks like marble. And in doing that, it makes it look different than the environment. And when I fell in love with this tool and this medium, I realized that I was ecologically sound. I was in balance. And because I start attracting huge...
1: How did you know that? Was this a felt sense in your body? Or was this an intellectual awareness? Well,
0: it's sort of obvious. I don't have to buy anything. I don't have any chemicals to use. I don't have to use any special tools. I can use a piece of stick or a seashell. I'm using ocean water and sand, the most ubiquitous material in the world. Actually, nobody knows this except... Um, geologists. Sand is not a substance. It's a measurement of size. Anything bigger than dust and smaller than a pebble is called sand. And that means calcium carbonate, silica, calcium silica, um, uh, thousands and thousands of of materials are sand because of their size. And you can be on a beach in the Yucatan and lying on beautiful white material and you say, oh, what lovely sand. And it's 100% Excrement from parrot fishes,
1: oh my God, and
0: it's clean, it's beautiful, it's been recycled through the ocean, and sand, of course, moves from the top of a mountain down to the bottom of the ocean and then back up again over geological time and so when I'm on the beach and I'm doing this kind of art, I'm fitting into the environment in the most comfortable way I can. I'm part of a performance, I attract sometimes very large crowds of maybe a hundred people. Even if it's not a commission piece, I just do spontaneous things and people want to ask me questions. Why do you do this? Are you an artist? Aren't you sad when it washes away? And my answers are, yes, I'm an artist and I do it for exercise and as a way of creatively expressing myself and learning things about the ocean and about the material. But I also... Want to be able to talk to people about barrier island ecology, ocean movement, tsunamis, radioactive waste in the ocean, um, marine life.
1: So, t- first tell us something about ephemeral art, and then tell us something about those, you know, the radioactive waste in the ocean ecology. Um,
0: the oceans have been explored. The oceans make up, what, 80% of the Earth's surface, and we know nothing about it. Um, I'm reading Bill Bryson right now, so I happen to be full of all kinds of facts about how many thousands of barrels of radioactive waste have been dropped into the ocean willy-nilly by every country that has a nuclear power plant. And they don't care that they degrade Immediately and um, I mean immediately is relative term, but very soon because the ocean is a rough environment uh, And it's full.
1: So how long before our oceans are glowing neon green with radioactive waste?
0: I don't want to speculate about how much longer Homo sapiens has on this planet, but I am not an optimist. I think we are moving very fast in the wrong direction and we're not even beginning to turn around. You know, doing away with plastic bags and styrofoam and things like that are important, and they're little steps. You know, we all know that the long journey begins with one step, but we need to turn around fast and big. We need – and and that's what I do when I'm on the beach, making these sculptures. It's not just entertainment as far as I'm concerned. It's a way for me to get to a lot of people, and I've done thousands of these sculptures in on – in. 17 different countries, maybe 50 different beaches. I've spoken to thousands of people about the mess that we're creating, and it's serious. It's really serious. I, I've been a vegetarian for 45 years. I stopped eating fish 15, 20 years ago, and I stopped eating all forms of animal several years ago. So I stopped eating red meat when my kids were brand new. Uh and I don't force it on anybody else, but I don't want to eat anything that comes out of the ocean. Cod doesn't exist anymore. We're eating junk fish now. Um, people think they're eating scallops. It isn't scallops. It's something else. You know, it's uh, it's a compound of other fish mashed together to look like scallops, and. It's it's a tough problem because I don't want to be a downer when I'm out there and people are so happy to see an artist having a good time and playing Frisbee and then getting down on his hands and knees and digging a fancy hole. Um, but human beings are digging a hole for themselves, and they're burying themselves in it.
1: Well, what you're saying is there's a deeper dimension to art, that it's not just for fun and games, although fun and games are fun. But there's a deeper dimension here, and you're trying to speak to that.
0: Yeah, and it's also related to the flying disc. Um there the one of the most popular disc games in the world right now is ultimate. It's played practically in every high school and college in America. And it used to be that there was one rule, the spirit of the game, which meant no arguing, no conflict. If you argue, the game's over. Mm. Now there are 24 pages of rules about conflict resolution and what constitutes oh. a foul and what's an out of bounds and and it's a wonderful game. And one of the things I loved about it was that there was one device, a simple piece of plastic that was designed to fly and no other equipment. You don't even need a field. But now you do because money is involved. Mm-hmm. And that's true of freestyle, and it's true of ultimate, and it's true of disc golf. Now, if you're a disc golf player, there are 1,800 courses in America now, and they're all busy, and they're all for free. But you can't build, them, build one without thousands of dollars because they have to have these special pole holes with baskets that catch the disc. And now there are 20 different kinds of discs. And, of course, that's fine because we're capitalists, and we need companies that make those things. But I thought, why does it have to be so damn complicated? Why can't it just be like it is for me? I take out my disc to the park, and I have a couple other discs for my friends, and I say, okay, the next target is that tree over there. And we hit the tree, and we walk onto the next. The next target is that barrel over there or that fire hydrant, and you walk through the woods, and you have a great time. And simple. Simple. I love simple.
1: Mm.
0: And at the same time, I like complicated.
1: (laughs) Well, Speaking of simple and complicated, go back to ephemeral art. You know, my husband is a classical figure of sculptors, you know. He casts in bronze, and he really means his sculptures to stand forever. So I'm intrigued by what you say about ephemeral.
0: There is no forever. And I've recently been in Europe, in Greece, in Italy. I love those countries. And I saw in in Delphi and in Fiorence, things that I wish could last forever. They're utterly beautiful and they're magnificent and they're full of love and talent and craftsmanship and skill and, and now time. So when I make these things that are ephemeral, I'm kind of making a statement about how we should really take care of things. It's It's sort of a hidden statement. Uh, I'm emphasizing the time as one of the elements of my work. I recently did a piece. We were expecting two feet of snow in New York City. And I did a joking piece of snow sculpture that was two feet of snow, but it was five feet tall. And it was just the ankles and the feet. I remember that. That I think that was right on the street, right? It was. And that went viral. I had 900,000 hits within a few days because people walked by with their cell phones and they took a picture and they immediately emailed it to their friends. And and that's kind of jokey ephemeral. But at the same time, I I want people to understand that, well, I, I hate to be so pedantic and so preachy, but... No, no, it's thoughtful. Well, my dad was a holier than thou kind of a of a guy. He he called smokers trash
1: burners. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not fond either. He
0: he was very hard on people who were less than he. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: uh, in fact, he was so hard on us that we couldn't use note the contraction contractions in our home because he thought they were impolite to foreigners. Cannot is much easier to understand than can't. Uh, and so he was kind in a way, but he was a hard ass. All that kind of stuff. And he browbeat us. Um, so it was green or hit the road. <laughs> and um, and so I'm trying to be a little more humanistic about this whole thing. But I love ephemera because it's it's a practical thing. As as you mentioned in the intro, intro, I've done seven New York City playgrounds, and that is hard, hard work. Concrete is is a disaster material. <laughs> it's poisonous. It's hard on your body. I had nine helpers to build the, the world's fanciest sandbox right down here at 83rd Street in Riverside Park.
1: Yes, my kids grew up playing in that, or they did after it was there. And I
0: still play it. <laughs> <laughs> after a rain, I can go down there. What I like about that piece is that um, I designed it so that the concrete is the same color as the sand, so that when it rains, the sand gets a little darker and the concrete gets a little darker and it looks as if the kids built everything. Mm. And when I go down there and build something fancy, I connect it to the concrete so that I'm showing kids how to extend the creativity of the creator into what they can add to it. So when the, the Parks Department broke the nose off of the giant, I went in and I put sand on the broken nose and repaired it. Mm-hmm. Of course, it washed away in the next rain or fell off when it got dry. But ephemera is is cheap. It's free. And actually, I'm so damn green that when I take a tool like a sharp putty knife or something like that and I cut into the sand, I apologize to the thousands of sub- well, they're not sub-microscopic, but they're microscopic creatures that live in sand. Oh. They are the most amazing looking creatures. They look like little dinosaurs.
1: Have you looked at them through a microscope?
0: Well, I've seen illustrations of them in books. Um, I don't carry a microscope to the beach very often. But, <laughs> <laughs> but these creatures, I could damage them. Some of them are magic creatures. You cut them in half, and then they become two of them, (laughs) or they grow a new head or whatever. But there are amazing things living in the sand, and some of them are not so small. There are sand crabs, and there are all kinds of things that you disturb. So people don't realize that. But when I'm working in the sand, I typically say, oh, they say, what tools do you use? The best tools? Hands. Because you can feel how moist, how dry, how hot, how wet. Um, and you're not going to hurt these little creatures. So, I mean, it's a, it's almost ridiculous because people say, oh, they don't have souls. Well, I don't believe that. I don't believe in souls, but I think these, these little creatures feel pain just like I do. And let me tell you, I feel a lot of pain after I build one of those damn
1: things. What are your favorite beaches to make sand? sculptures on?
0: My favorite is a beach in Tulum uh, in the Yucatan in Mexico where the sand has all the perfect characteristics. Um, Sand is tricky. There's something called the angle of repose where if you pile up sand it forms a cone, uh, an inverted cone shape like a pyramid and that angle is the angle of repose. If it's dry it it has a certain predictability based on its molecular structure, how complicated the grains are, what they're made out of, and so on. But as soon as there's water, there's surface tension, and you can change the angle of repose. So you can stack things up nice and tall, and that sand happened to have been perfect. And the environment, of course, can't be beat it's, unless there's some guy with a rifle who comes up and says you're building right next to the mansion of a drug dealer and you're you're (laughs) under arrest and i'm going to shoot you and um that's not fun that's mexico (laughs) Uh,
1: well uh tell us about your games and inventing games because you said to me before we started that you call yourself an inventor who happens to be an artist or something like that yeah i
0: i love games um i like word games um I actually don't like puzzles and things like that so much, although I I do them sometimes. But I don't like Sudoku and crossword and all those things. Because
1: do you like card games? I grew up in a poker-playing family, and it's very sad for me. My husband and daughter don't play cards. Um, yeah, I do. But I learned a long time ago that I'm not very
0: competitive. I like competing against myself. I've been in two World Frisbee Championships, and as soon as the pressure was on, I clutched. Is that the word? Yeah. I I didn't do well. I held one world title for Maximum Time Aloft for about 40 minutes until my best buddy beat me by <laughs> a couple of hundredths of a second. And Maximum Time Aloft, by the way, is one of the most wonderful games in the uh, flying disc uh, world. You throw into the air, and then three people with stopwatches Click as soon as it leaves your hand. And when you catch it with one hand and don't drop it, they take the the middle time. And the world record is somewhere around 17 seconds. Now, if you count 17 seconds, it's a long time for you to throw something to yourself. And there's a related discipline called TRC, throw, run, and catch. Now, cast your mind there for a second. What do you suppose that means? It means you throw to yourself, but you want to cover the greatest distance between your own throw and your own catch. Uh And the people who win that discipline are people who are approximating the world record in the 100-yard dash for speed. And when they're making the catch, they're sliding on the grass on their face to eke out the last millimeter of distance to make the catch. And I, I think that's a spectacular discipline.
1: That's amazing. So I just, at this point, I just want to make sure that listeners can find your websites, which are linuspress.com and that's L Y N A S press.com and sansong.com. But go back to some of these games you've invented, like tell us about Einstein.
0: Oh, the Einsteiner. Well, I don't want to reveal too much about this because I'm working on a book I haven't decided what to call it. In fact, I was thinking of not calling it anything and selling it with a grease pencil and asking the buyer to invent a title to, or a marker and write the title on the book, and that enables you to buy it, uh, forcing them to do that Eureka moment kind of thing. Uh, this book will have a 100 of my inventions in it, which I have not patented and not protected in any way, but which I've prototyped and tested over many years. Uh, some of my games.
1: Why don't you patent them?
0: Because I can't afford a lawyer, and I <laughs> and I don't want to hire a lawyer to protect me against copyright infringement or patent uh, infringement. And patent law now is really complicated. And
1: well, the lawyers had to give themselves something to do. So.
0: Yes, of course. Um, and I don't even care about copyrighting my books, but. I do the I do the books as kind of um a way to make a little bit more money and to do something beautiful. I especially like publishing for children and now I've designed
1: Yeah, tell us about Tammy and Blue and the race for
0: time. Uh and the race against time, race I think. Yeah. Um
1: Uh When does it come out? When can people buy it and where?
0: August fifteenth, my birthday.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, um, um, me. Yeah. You're also a Leah. That's right. <laughs>
0: um the I think you can order it in advance also. Uh, the, the It's a story about a child who is in a colorless world. And then Blue shows up in her room as she's going to sleep and says, I can color your world with you. All you have to do is name a color and then an object and it will become that color. So in the interactive book, when you touch a colored word in the text, like the word yellow, you hear a bell and the text says she wants to color her nightgown. So if you touch the nightgown, you hear an arpeggio and her nightgown becomes yellow.
1: Yeah, it was. you and I were playing with it. It was so much fun. The sounds are beautiful and then the color shows up. It looks beautiful on an iPad. It's so cool because um, it really is interactive. I mean, you really get engaged.
0: Yeah, and it's. you might have noticed that it's not word leveled. I never spoke down to my children. I every once in a while I would coo and goo goo ga kind of thing, but I always spoke to them like intelligent beings. And if they didn't understand me, they would say so, say so or indicate that they didn't. And so now I have very articulate children who aren't afraid of language and who read and who are autodidactic and they I'm I'm really happy that I treated them as intelligent sentient beings and not be stupid with them uh, so my books do not word level uh and i say that right out front this is a read to book so the child goes through her room coloring everything her clothing her chair her walls her bedspread her objects her books every page every book and Each time you touch a colored word, you touch an object and it becomes that color. But when she's finished, Blue says he has to leave before sunup, and he disappears out the window, and Tammy passes what used to be kind of a bluish mirror, and she sees that she forgot to give herself any color, her skin. Mm -hmm. And this, was born out of the question that my four-year-old daughter, Tammy, asked me. Um, Papa, why is your skin a different color than mine? Well, we're both Caucasians, but I'm very dark. I have Mediterranean melanin, and she's very waspy. And so I said there are no two people who are exactly alike in this world, and I went with it. So I wrote the story 45 years ago. And I illustrated it, and then I scanned the illustrations. Oh, by the way, we never know what color she chooses for herself, but she cries herself to sleep, thinking that she's the only colorless person on Earth. But she wakes up in the morning and looks out the window, and out the window there are no illustrations. It's a full-color, real, photographic world. And the arpeggios play in sequence, and it's the Paco Bell Canon indeed. Yeah. yeah, um, but nobody knows that until they've heard a few of them in in, in order um, so Tammy and Blue has come to fruition after all these years. I was waiting for the technology to catch up so that I could hire a programmer, which I hate doing by by the way, my websites are both out of date, but um people can go to my facebook page i I well, guess
1: on your facebook
0: page uh. G, I don't even know for sure. G. Augustine Linus. Yeah, G. period Augustine Linus. Uh, but if you go to uh, to Sandsong, you can see a lot of my work. Um,
1: and that's www.sandsong.com.
0: Right, like singing on the beach, which is what making ephemeral art is. By the way, I play music every single day. I've written the music for both of my daughter's weddings. I play.
1: What kind of music and what instruments?
0: I play quite a few instruments, not like Gideon.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He's our troubadour coming next week.
0: Gideon and I are old friends and frisbee partners, and uh, he's a wonderful talent and a brilliant guy and one of the funniest persons I know. Um, Where was I? I'm off on being, um,
1: on, uh, on playing music. What kind kind of instruments you play? Uh,
0: I play classical guitar every day and I've been playing for 40 years, but I'm still struggling with Bach and, (laughs) but I like creating my own music and, um, but I play other folky instruments like bones and limberjack and jaw harp. And I used to play the violin seriously for nine years. Um,
1: and was this interest in music um, encouraged in your home when you were a kid?
0: Yeah, I studied violin as a young child, and I was really good at it, and I loved it. But when I got to college, I couldn't get a date as a violinist. So. <laughs> <laughs> but I was stupid. I took up classical guitar, and you can't get a date doing that either. So. Well, how
1: did you get dates? Like rock and roll guitar? Yeah,
0: you got to plug it in. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah. So is
1: rock music environmentally sound? Hell no. <laughs> uh
0: yeah, electricity is uh did you hear on NPR this morning about how air conditioning is destroying our world? No. It's creating so much heat. Oh. And it's of course we're overcooling everything. Mm-hmm. So so as I, I came into your studio here, I said I'm not an air conditioning type person. I don't even have an air conditioner in my house, uh, although my wife says we need an air conditioner once in a while. But I grew up in Washington D.C., which is hot as living hell yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and wet. Uh, so I got used to it, and I love the beach and cooling off naturally. Mm-hmm. If I'm hot, I take off clothes.
1: Yeah, my idea of heaven, I think, is Cape Cod, especially around the Truro area, um, the National Seashore, and so let me ask you. From your personal perspective, what would you note as the most important elements of being an artist? And what's your philosophy as an artist?
0: Mm, Most important elements. Well, I have trouble with the art world, which is one of the reasons why I like Sabin's work, by the way, Mm -hmm. because it's old-fashioned, it's figurative, you know what it is when you look at it. Um, and I have trouble with the art world because it became a business, but it always has been.
1: Did Peter Trippy, the editor of Fine Art Connoisseur magazine, came on the show, you know, a month ago or six weeks ago and talked about the toxic art market trade and how it's killing art.
0: Well, I don't know that article, but I believe it. Um, I know, for example, that if we want to make a superstar, it's pretty easy. All you need is a multimillionaire who finds somebody who's doing something new. There isn't anything new, but something outrageous. And they will have a show, and this multimillionaire will secretly buy everything in the show. The show sold, sells out. It hits the media. You know, a new superstar sells out. And then they surreptitiously dispose of the art in one way or another by – but once he's a superstar, the prices inflate and so on. But also, I don't like art that doesn't take skill, craft. Um, I, I'm a, I guess kind of a fuddy-duddy that way but on the other hand that doesn't mean I don't like abstract expressionism or impressionism or data or neoclassicism or any any of the, the new forms of art but I want to see composition, I want to see play of light and dark, I want to see craft, I want to see skill – I don't care if it has subject matter. It helps if it has subject matter for me because it helps me to dive into it. I mean, I can sit in front of a Van Eyck or a Van Gogh or a Rubens or even a Kandinsky. I can't sit in front of a Kandinsky as long as I can in front of a Vermeer
1: right? right.
0: or even a copy of a Vermeer. Did you see Tim's Vermeer? No, Tim. Oh, the, on the, the
1: the documentary about the guy who taught himself how to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah he, he
0: never painted it. a thing in his yeah. life, and he copies a remire And when you look at it, it looks like the original thing. So, I even love copies of great <laughs> art because I can sit and look at it and say, "Gee, that costume really came from that period. That facial expression is really studied. Uh, that hairstyle, that that light, that." And the skill to render that, um, because I used to think I was special when I realized I was an artist and that I could draw, uh, and that I had to hone these raw skills, uh, and I and therefore I could make a living as an artist. But but if somebody merely does something unusual or original, like a happening. It can be interesting, but it seems shallow to
1: me. And I, I always think we've lost the ability to discern in modern culture. We're lacking discernment in a lot of areas, but one of the things we don't discern is the difference between self-expression and real art. Not everything that's thrown on a piece of paper is art.
0: That's why I was fairly reluctant to put my children's art up on their fridge. Uh, but I did... Do a book called Tammy and Her Drawings once where I copied a bunch of her drawings, like Uh. 18 of them in miniature, and I put them in a little book. And the story was about how Tammy fell in love with drawing, and she drew so much that she got lost in her own drawings. She couldn't find herself on the page.
1: Kind of of a little bit like Harold and the Purple Crayon.
0: Yeah. Reminds me of a New Yorker cartoon that I saw yesterday where – Waldo is sitting in front of uh, a headhunter, and the headhunter is saying, where will Waldo be in five years? (laughs) Uh, Oh, my other favorite New Yorker cartoon is the construction worker who's up on a girder, and they're all going in all kinds of weird directions. And the construction worker is looking down, and he's saying,
1: Escher, get your ass up here. (laughs) Well, tell me. Who inspires you? Who are your models? Who inspires you? Besides Da Vinci, he must be one cuz you said you have that book in your um in your home.
0: Um uh oh my god. All the great masters. Uh, Michelangelo, Da Vinci. Uh, all of the I I love impressionism. Um I like surrealism. Uh so I mean although he was a commercial hitman <laughs> dolly oh,
1: Dali, yeah.
0: yeah yeah he would sit and sign thousands and thousands of prints he, he had nothing to do with uh with producing them and he would say limited edition which is a damn lie <laughs> i think uh so
1: he was a great marketing genius
0: he was a marketer and you know hence the modern art world a- anyway uh yeah i Practically anybody you could find in an art history book. Quite a few of the abstraction expressionists bother me. Um, I know of one who's not very famous. He was a friend of my wife's. His name was Ronaldo de Juan, an Argentine painter, who did just abstract work, no subject whatsoever. And they, there was just something about their texture and their the use of color that made me want to spend time looking at them and trying to understand the emotion behind them. On the other hand, if I look at a Peter Bruegel, even a drawing or um, or Van, uh, Van Gogh or um, a Peter Paul Rubens, I can get lost in it forever. Even a lot of the romantic stuff in the Hudson River School uh, or – or some of the more contemporary people, the WPA people like Thomas Hart Benton, distorted figures, the wonderful muralists—they have juice, they have, they have substance. They're just, and they're not all beautiful. Some of them are quite awful, and, and but you you know what I'm getting at.
1: Yeah, I'm distantly related to Thomas Hart Benton. My mother's maiden name was Benton. No kidding. Um, What have you found to be the best tools to help you on your path to being successful?
0: I don't care about success. It may seem antithetical.
1: Okay, to help you pay the bills while raising children and being an artist.
0: Thank you for rephrasing that. (laughs) I've never had trouble uh, making money, and I think it's because I don't give a damn about money. Uh, I've never – I always adjust my prices not based on my – credentials, but based on what the customer can pay. You might have noticed from that list of things that you put on, your, um, on that page about me that came from my CV, almost all of those clients are either medical or educational or environmental Reluctantly, I worked for the Cathedral of St. John the Divine because I'm a-religious. I think religion is one of the worst things that ever happened to humanity. Uh, sorry, folks. I uh, don't mean to offend anybody. But, okay. Uh-oh. Here comes a lightning bolt. <laughs> <laughs> no. go. <no, no. laughs> um, but I was their art director for nine years, and I published their newsletter, and I got to know Philly Petit and all the stone cutters and did all the promotion for the stone yard, which I thought was um, um a way to keep alive some of the ancient art forms and to give work to the people in Harlem and uh, the people who had wanted to learn a craft. Um, so the tools that I use, I—I um, I guess I'm a self-promoter. That's why I'm here. Uh, but I tell people I'm more famous than I want to be uh, because. I uh, Sansong has been seen by thousands of people and Olympic Village Journal did okay and and that wonderful piece that Japan did oh my god you should have seen how they ended that film it's it's uh, I think I can probably uh, probably put it on YouTube although they I think they have the copyrights but they followed me all day long and they see a piece of my sculpture, which is a fountain in a private garden on 85th Street. They went to the beach with me, to Jones Beach, and I built a piece for them. And when the piece was washing washing away, this really blew me away. The sun was going down. The sculpture was inundated by the water. It was trickling in through little things that I cut for it to predict the water flow. It was turning orange and pink. And when they edited the film... They put music in the background. You know what it was? What? Whale
1: songs. (gasps) Oh, beautiful. So
0: the whale songs were, ooh, ooh, and it was spectacular. Couldn't have been more beautiful.
1: Well, we have about four minutes left and not even because I'll have to do a little outro. So just tell people where they can find out about you, how they can contact you, what books you have available and where they can buy them. Just give you all your contact information, what's available and then maybe what you have upcoming. But where can people find you? What can they buy of yours?
0: Okay. I have uh, three books that are still available. Sansong, Ephemeral Sculptures by me. Um, The ABCs of Central Park. The ABCs of Brooklyn and soon to be available the ABCs of Riverside Park and my ebook, Tammy and Blue, and people can email me if they want to. g Linus, L Y N A S at AOL.com, also at gmail.com. Oh. Um and they could go to my website, which has all that kind of information. And they can. And
1: your websites are sansong.com and linuspress.com, and then you have a Facebook page.
0: I do, which I find very weird.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: I don't even know what to do with Facebook.
1: So any last bits of advice to give to share with people, to share with the world, last, last thoughts, last pieces of advice?
0: I appreciate all these people who didn't call in because I'm not
1: sure what I would have said.
0: I told all my friends not to call in, oh, no. <laughs> um, and uh, and I want to thank you. You've been really a good hostess, and um, I appreciate the time.
1: Well, Linus, you're amazing. I mean, you really are a polymath. It's a it's a delight and a an honor to have you on the show. So give us, we still have just a few seconds, so tell people a fun fact about you that maybe they wouldn't know.
0: I'm 73 years old, and I look like I'm 50. 50, yeah. And that's because I make art every day, and time disappears when you make art. And and because I go out and I throw plastic around and, and introduce myself to strangers and make friends all over the world.
1: Yes, you do make friends all over the world. And yes, you introduced yourself to me once like that. <laughs> so Linus, thank you again for being on. I'm really grateful. Um come back soon, I hope. Anytime. And I just want to thank everyone who's been listening and I wanna remind you to so that was um Augustine Linus, so we call him Linus and his um this wonderful guest can be found at sansong.com and linuspress.com to learn more about him and his work. And he can be reached via email, glinus at com and glinus at gmail.com. Um, so it was wonderful to have him on. He was a terrific guest. And to everyone who's listening, thank you so much for listening and for joining us. Please come back next week on Wednesday, July 22nd at noon as Troubadour Gideon Irving talks about stovetop music. So... Have a great week and hope to see you soon. This has been Tracy L. Slatten on the Independent Artists and Thinkers Network. Thanks for joining us. Come back next week.